This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora. I'm Lottie and I work for the Canterbury Workers' Educational Association. And on the 15th of December, we jointly hosted with Network Waitangi Otutahi a ZUI, a Zoom conversation with New Zealand's Chief Commissioner of Human Rights, Paul Hunt. And it was on the very topical issue of vaccination mandates and human rights. Paul is a highly qualified national of both Aotearoa and the UK. He studied law at Cambridge and later Waikato University. Um, and he's lived and undertaken human rights work in Europe, the Middle East, Africa and here in New Zealand. He's taught at both Waikato and Essex universities and he's served as an independent expert on the UN Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights as well as a UN Special Rapporteur on the right to the highest attainable standard of health. For two years after 2011, he advised the World Health Organisation Assistant Director General on Human Rights. Paul has also written extensively on civil, political economic, social and cultural rights. And in 2008, the Nordic School of Public Health awarded him an honorary doctorate, as did the University of Waikato in 2021. His term as our New Zealand Chief Human Rights Commissioner began in 2019, and we were extremely grateful for his time yesterday on this important issue. So here, Paul begins the discussion with some contextual remarks. Um. When one's considering a a huge issue like COVID-19, a huge issue which engages vaccination mandates and much, much more, um, one has to think about a whole range of human rights. And not all of those human rights are well known in Aotearoa. They're not well known in Aotearoa, but they do apply to Aotearoa. So I'm not making them up. These are human rights that New Zealand's successive governments have signed up to and have undertaken to respect and advance. So it's sort of my job as Chief Commissioner to ensure that these rights that have been promised are part of the part of the discussion. They're on the table when we consider these huge huge issues like COVID-19. So very briefly, I want to just explain what, the, the, what is meant by human rights so far as they relate to COVID-19. So when in New Zealand we talk about human rights, usually what is understood is the human right not to be discriminated against. And the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act of 1990. And most people have a sort of faint idea of what the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act encompasses. And it encompasses what are called, it doesn't really matter what the name is, but what are called civil and political rights. It encompasses uh, freedom of speech. It encompasses freedom of religion. It encompasses the prohibition against torture. It encompasses freedom of assembly, meaning to protest in a public place. 
and it means the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act encompasses the right to life. So there are those human rights in Aotearoa, and most people have a sense of familiarity with them, at least, at least an idea of them. And those human rights are critically important, but they're only part of the human rights cake. They're only part of the human rights spectrum. New Zealand has signed up to and is legally bound by, in international law, uh, a range of additional rights, additional to those New Zealand Bill of Rights provisions. And these additional human rights, um, which I, I, I repeat, successive governments have signed up to, successive governments have solemnly declared to do all they reasonably can to honour these rights. These rights include uh, the right to health care, the right to health protection, the right to education, the right to a decent home. Also, very relevant to COVID-19, the right to work. That's not an exhaustive list. I just give you the flavor of these additional human rights, which aren't so well known in New Zealand, but which successive governments have signed up to and have promised to do all they reasonably can, all they reasonably can to deliver these human rights. Now this commitment is, uh, it's not a blank check. You know, the right to education costs money, the right to healthcare costs money, the right to health protection costs money. So what international human rights law says that the government has to do all it reasonably can within its, within its budgetary constraints to realize these human rights. Okay, so it's important when we consider vaccination mandates and when we, we consider government's response to COVID-19, it's important to keep in mind that there is this broad spectrum of human rights which the government is legally bound to do all it can to comply with. So that's, that's one critical point for our discussion. There's this wide spectrum of human rights. There's a second contextual point I want to make, and that is this, and you might be uncomfortable with it, but don't shoot the messenger, right? This is the law. I'm just explaining what the law is. Most human rights can be restricted in certain circumstances when the welfare of a democratic society requires restrictions to be placed on human rights they may be placed on those human rights so very few human rights are absolute the prohibition against, prohibition against torture is absolute freedom of uh, freedom of thought is absolute you can think what you want but most human rights including freedom of speech uh, most human rights uh, are subject to restrictions limited that they can be subjected to limited restrictions in certain circumstances in certain circumstances and one of those circumstances is when there's a global pandemic 
So a government is entitled to think about possible restrictions on human rights when there's a national health emergency. So that's my second point. First point is broad vision of human rights, which apply to the COVID-19 context. A second context is that most human rights may be lawfully restricted in certain limited circumstances. The third point by way of context, again, whether we like it or not, I'm just conveying what the situation is, whether we like it or not, most rights have to be balanced between other rights. And actually, we do this every day. <laughs> you know, we balance, for instance, the right to privacy, that's an important human right, with freedom of information. So there are balances that have to be struck between those two competing rights, the right to privacy and freedom of information. And most people are very comfortable with that. Balances have to be struck between competing rights. So that's my third contextual remark, and that's going to be very relevant to our discussion about COVID-19, because balances have to be struck in the COVID context. But let me turn to my fourth contextual point to try to set the scene for this tricky, tricky issue that we're faced with as a country. My, my fourth contextual point is this, that if human rights are restricted in certain circumstances, and if they are balanced between competing rights, then then that exercise of restricting human rights and striking balances is subject to certain conditions, that there is a test applied to, to determine whether the restrictions are lawful or not. There is, there are, there is a, a process for deciding whether when you're competing human rights, the balance is struck in the right place. So, okay, whether we like it or not, there may be restrictions on human rights, whether we like it or not, there can be balances between competing human rights. But this is the point I want to emphasize that if restrictions are imposed, and if there are competing rights put in a balance, then it has to be done in a certain way. And what is that way? Well, the restrictions or the balancing has to be lawfully done. It has to be done consistent with a regulation of parliament or an act of parliament. It can't be the police who decide it. It can't even be Ashley Bloomfield who decides it. It's got to be lawful. It's got to be lawfully regulated, lawfully enacted. It's got to be a lawful restriction. Law balance. That's one point. It also has to be rational. So if there is an irrational, if there's an irrational restriction on a human right, or if there's an irrational balance struck, that's going to be unlawful. It's got to be a rational restriction or a rational balancing act. Now, by rational, that means it's got to be reasonable, it's got to be evidence-based. It can't just be plucked out of the air on a whim. 
it's got the restriction or the balance has to be informed by the science. It has to be informed by reason. It can't just be arbitrary. Now there's another test on a restriction and on of human rights. And there's another test on how to balance human rights. So I've mentioned it has to be lawful, it has to be rational, that is evidence-based, has to be reasonable. It also, the restriction or the balance has to be proportionate. So if there's a, uh, you know, if there's a slight social problem, then the restriction has to be proportionate to that slight social problem. You know, a hammer shouldn't be allowed to crack a nut. So there has to be a degree of proportionality between the restriction and the problem. Don't get it out of perspective. Be proportionate. So that's another quality that restrictions on human rights have to have. It's another quality that when you're striking balances between human rights, you have to have. It has to be proportionate restriction or a proportionate balancing act. And then there are some others, but I'll just mention one other test that a restriction has to go through. And that is, it's got to be reviewable. What I mean is, there has to be an independent third party to check that the restriction hasn't overreached, to check that the balance struck isn't bonkers. There's got to be someone, an independent person, a court or a human rights commission or an ombudsman or whatever it might be. There's got to be an independent mechanism or individual to check that the restriction or the balancing act conforms with those conditions. Rationality, evidence-based, reasonable, proportionate, and so on. Okay. Now, look, I'm sorry if that sounds a bit geeky and techy, but it's really important if we are to be serious about thinking through COVID-19 and vaccination mandates. So let me come now to COVID-19. And you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to speak for a very much longer. I want to open it up and people can ask questions. Uh, they can make short comments. But let me just speak now about, in the light of that context, let me speak now about two different stages in Aotearoa in the COVID-19 space. And it's really important to keep these different phases separate. So the first phase from February, March 2020 through to roughly the middle of this year, the first phase we were in was the alert level system. The alert level system. So the Human Rights Commission for its part, we scrutinized the alert level system. We tried to check whether it was lawful, whether the restrictions were legitimate, whether the balancing acts were appropriate. Uh, that's what we tried to do. And on the whole, we came to the view, and you might disagree, but we came to the view that the government had struck reasonable balances during the alert level system. It was balancing the right to life, the right to health care, the right to health protection. 
on the one hand with the right to work, the right to travel, the right to meet in groups. That's the right of assembly. So rightly or wrongly, you might think we didn't get it right, but we used our best endeavors to interrogate the law, to look at the situation. And we thought that on the whole, the government level systems had done a pretty good job in striking the balances fairly and rationally and proportionately. The government had a human rights obligation to respond to COVID-19. It couldn't have done nothing. It had a human rights obligation to respond to COVID-19. It had a human rights obligation to do everything it reasonably could to protect your life and my life. It had a human rights obligation to do everything it reasonably could to provide you and me with health care if we got sick. It had a human rights binding obligation to provide health protection to stop us getting sick. Social distancing, masks, lockdown for certain limited periods of time. So really the government had, if it had done nothing, I would have blown, as would many of others, I would have blown a human rights whistle and said, you've got it wrong. You've got an obligation government, the right to life to protect us so far as possible, right to healthcare to provide us with, um, with uh, healthcare if we get sick, as I did, as I got COVID-19 early on in March, April last year, and I was provided with healthcare. And it was the state's obligation to provide that healthcare. And then when I recovered, there was then a state obligation to provide health protection for me and for you. And if they'd not done those things, they would have been in breach of human rights. But they had to make a trade-off. They had to balance those human rights, life and death. They had to balance those human rights with the human right to people to go to work, the right to work, people to travel in New Zealand. They had to balance that. They had to balance freedom of, of assembly, going to meet family going to have a public meeting and so forth so that was the balance they struck and they didn't get it it wasn't flawless and the human rights commission was critical sometimes of the government during the alert level system it's on the record when we were critical of them we thought they got some things a bit wrong but overall we felt that their response was on the whole consistent with a human rights approach to a global pandemic. Okay, that's the alert level system. Now the traffic light system, which I won't rehearse with you, we're all sort of familiar with it in outline. It's rather complicated in detail, and I'm sure you'll be able to trip me up on some of the details if you wish to. It's a complicated, complicated um, arrangement, but in broad outline, we're familiar with the traffic light system. Now, the traffic light system, is profoundly different from the alert level system. It's conceptually profoundly different from the alert level system. The alert level system treated everybody the same. At least in a geographical area where there was a lockdown, everyone was treated the same. And actually what I experienced, maybe you 
didn't. But what I experienced was quite a sort of heartwarming sense of collective endeavor during the alert level system. There was a sense of collect collectivity, of, of commonality. There was a sense of social inclusion. And I found that on, there were some exceptions, of course, but on the whole, I thought that was really rather wonderful. But that's the alert level system. The traffic light system is profoundly different. The traffic light system, in its DNA, it's distinguishing between two groups of people. Those who are vaccinated can do some stuff. Those who are unvaccinated cannot do all of those things. So in the very DNA of the traffic light system, you've got a differentiation taking place between two communities, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. They're being treated differently. It's a hard thing to say, but the traffic light system is a form of state mandated exclusion. It's a form of state mandated exclusion. It's saying to those who are not vaccinated, you can't go to the library. You can't do this, that and the other. So it's hugely different from the alert level system. Now, from the human rights point of view, this is very challenging. From, from the human rights point of view, you know, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of state-sanctioned or state-mandated exclusion. You know, all my training <laughs> is inclusion, <laughs> but here we've got exclusion. So we have to apply the same tests that I mentioned before. We have to ask, is it evidence-based? Is it proportionate? Is it lawful? Is it reasonable? Is it rational? Is it reviewable? And that's what we're endeavoring to do. And we're making the best judgment calls we can in a difficult, fluid uh, situation. Let me draw my remarks to a close um, with this thought. Um, in, I'm going to speak personally, um, and uh, and let's 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 treat it like that. You know, I I think that the um, the government's test of the traffic light system is, um, in principle, it's the right thing to do. Um, they're striking these balances again. They're looking at restrictions. Um, and in principle, uh, the traffic light system is consistent with a human rights approach. But I do have a but. And my but is that I think that as a country and the government has to give more attention to how it can soften the impact 
of this differential treatment, how it can soften the impact of this differential treatment on those who, for whatever reason, don't get vaccinated. And I think that one way, I put this on the table genuinely for discussion, I think one way of softening the, the distinction between vaccinated, who can do lots of stuff, and unvaccinated, who can't do so much stuff, one way of softening that distinction is by the greater use of the rapid antigen test. Now, the government has been quite slow to introduce the rapid antigen test, but it is now doing so. And there are now lengthy regulations about how to use the rapid antigen test. So just briefly, without being too techy about it, you know, the main test that we have all taken, I expect, is the PCR test. And this is a an authoritative test which will, uh, which will indicate whether or not we've got COVID. Um, whether or not we've got COVID. Now, the antigen, the rapid antigen test um, is a test, uh, excuse me, the PCR test takes a couple of days. The rapid antigen test takes 15 minutes. And um, it can indicate within 15 minutes um, with a high degree of probability, but not with complete certainty, that's important. With a high degree of probability, it can indicate whether or not you've got, you're carrying COVID. So what in the Human Rights Commission we're thinking about, and I'd welcome your views, is urging the government to keep on its track of a traffic light system, but of introducing the to, to rolling out further the rapid antigen test so that if there's someone who's not vaccinated, they can get up in the morning, they can go to the pharmacy, they can have a rapid antigen test, they get the result there and then from the pharmacist, and that then gives them a clean bill of health for 24 hours, four hours and then they go to the library and do the other things. In other words, the rapid antigen test um, reduces their exclusion. And I think reducing exclusion is really important. And the rapid antigen test is, is um, it's a responsible thing to do because it means that the person who has the test knows that they're not, they're not, they're not infecting their neighbors. They're not infecting other people who are in the community. So it's a responsible thing to do. And then if it's a positive result, then they have to go and self-isolate back at home. So it's a responsible thing to take the rapid antigen test. Um, and I'm, what I would be very interested to know is whether or not you think this is one way forward of not eliminating the distinction between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, the rapid antigen test does not eliminate that distinction, but it softens, it softens the, the, um, the impact of exclusion on unvaccinated people who are presently excluded. My last point is this, that, you, that if there were to be greater use of rapid antigen tests, it would have to be part of a package. It would have to be accompanied by social distancing, it would have to be accompanied by um, uh, hand hygiene. 
it would have to be accompanied by strict mask wearing. There's lots of evidence that mask wearing is a, it does seriously slow down transmission. So there needs to be what we're, what we're exploring in the Human Rights Commission now is saying to government, you've got it, you're right to introduce the traffic light system. However, it has a dramatic impact on some people, those who are unvaccinated, they are excluded. It's dangerous to exclude people. So let's introduce something that reduces their exclusion, but keeps the community safe. Rapid antigen test, wear a mask, hand hygiene, social distancing. So I put that on the table for you, and I'd be very interested to know, very, very genuinely, what you think about these really difficult uh, balances that the government is asked to, uh, is, uh, the government is asked to make. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Paul, for setting the scenes. Scene, um, please, folks, do put your questions in the chat. And uh, Lottie, will you um, bring them into the conversation? Certainly. Yep. Um, so the first one I've got is, did the government get it right for disabled people and Maori and Pacifica people? Have you had to tell the government that they needed to change policy for these groups? Yeah, nice question. Um, first of all, disabled people. Um, no, the, the, the government, do you remember I said that during the alert level system, I thought the Human Rights Commission, you might disagree, but the Human Rights Commission came to the view the government had got the balance quite nicely. But I did say there were some shortcomings. One of the shortcomings in the alert level system was around disability. Um, uh, we felt that they weren't sufficiently swift in addressing the particular circumstances of disability. We also felt that they weren't quick enough with the PPE, remember the protective personal equipment, and getting that rolled out. So, so that was amongst our disappointment was around the treatment of disabled people. Um, so that's one point. And then you mentioned um, Tangata Fenua. Look, um, I don't have the, the, the latest data right at my fingertips, but just in the last couple of days, you might have seen that um, about 50%, I'm open to correction colleagues, but about 50%, slightly over 50% of those with COVID are Tangata Whenua and Pacific people. I'm open to correction on that, but I think that's correct. I don't have all the data in front of me and the data shifts daily. So if that is uh, correct, then that shows that the government, you know, has just responsible under Tangi. Um, and uh, so, you know, the government, that's one of the shortcomings of the government. They, I think they've, they've, tried, they've tried really hard. Um, I think they were, they were a bit slow in relation to reaching out to Tangata Fenua. I think they're trying hard to catch up. Um, uh, but there was some disappointment in relation to disabled people and Tangata Fenua and Pacific people. Cool. Um, quite a few comments and questions around the rapid antigen test. Um, a question around the costs of both tests and whether this is a factor. Um, is there 
is there any way that we can get on board with the idea of the rapid antigen test? Does anyone know of a petition or something? Um, and will the Human Rights Commission step in um, and sort of lead and push for the rapid antigen test if, if people, are, the unvaccinated are becoming more and more estranged, if you feel that that balance isn't right? So a few questions there. So I, I am worried about a growing sense of dislocation, alienation, disaffection in part of our community. You know, we all work, most of us work desperately hard to enhance social inclusion. And there are signs of that social fabric, if not unraveling, then getting frayed. And that, that worries me. So I am really keen that there should be sensible they've got to be sensible ways of um of softening uh, this distinction and of stopping ensuring our social fabric doesn't unravel um or fray any further and i i think that the rapid antigen test needs to be taken very seriously look it, it, in new in auckland now um you know soon aucklanders are going to be able to leave the boundaries of auckland and if they're unvaccinated, they can have a rapid antigen test. And if it's negative, it takes 15 minutes. If it's negative, then they can leave Auckland, right? Um, also, um, Air New Zealand um, is saying that people have to be vaccinated before they can travel on Air New Zealand or have a rapid antigen test. So there are steps being taken to roll it out in relation to Aucklanders leaving Auckland and in relation to those of us who wish to travel on Air New Zealand who might not be vaccinated. I mean, I am double vaccinated. I think that's the right thing to do. Um, but if someone doesn't, then they could still, in relation to Air New Zealand, Air New Zealand will accept a rapid antigen test. Now, I think that probably points the way forward. Uh, and and th this, you know, has this has come up sharply just in the last few days where new regulations have been published about rapid antigen tests. You know, the, the position is changing so rapidly. And, and in the Human Rights Commission, I'm being very frank with you, you know, we're now re-evaluating rapid antigen tests. And, and we will soon be taking a firm position on, on um, the degree to which these should be rolled out uh, and, and so forth and so on. My, I, I was very careful to say earlier that my personal position is that I think rapid antigen tests are probably one of the ways to go. We need a toolbox. I think this needs to be in the toolbox. And I think if we use it carefully, it can keep community safe and it can stop some of the alienation that unvaccinated people are presently feeling. But I'd welcome views on that. There's just a piece of information here, Lottie, about the petition with 87,000 people asking for rapid antigen testing to be available to everyone was presented this morning. Oh, well, thank you. I didn't know that, Catherine. Thanks for uh, sharing that. Well, that's now, not me. It was somebody, Jeanette. Mm. Thank, thanks, Jeanette. Um, look, I, I forgot to re respond to the point about uh, cost. Um, Frankly, look, I, I won't, I won't uh, dissemble. I'm not quite sure about the cost. I, I need to be told, and I don't have the information. Uh, I, I don't mean it's being uh, hidden from me. I just haven't got hold of it yet. Uh, uh, the cost of the, the real cost of these, um, these antigen, rapid antigen tests, 
my my from the human rights point of view um they need to be as just as accessible as possible including financially accessible so if the cost becomes an obstacle that's going to disadvantage some communities that's that's unacceptable from the rights view would be my that would be the lens that i would bring to that question about cost it mustn't become you know the, the rapid antigen test could be a way to help those who for whatever reason are unvaccinated but it would see, cease to be a way to help unvaccinated people if the cost is out of their reach so you know if we're going down the rapid antigen lane then it has to be uh, a lane that's available to everyone whether disadvantaged whether rich whether poor or whatever I'll just uh, find some more questions, just one second. So, um, Paul, do you think that the managed isolation quarantine facilities are a breach of human rights? It depends how they're done. Um, and uh, again, what, what I'm, you know, sorry to be boring about it, but what, as, as the Human Rights Commission, what we have to do is apply those tests uh, which is set out in international human rights law, you know, the tests of rationality, lawfulness, I'm just looking at my list here, proportionality, reviewability, etc. So we have to apply those tests. And, and in principle, we think that the MIQ system um, satisfies those tests. Of course, in some cases, it can go wonky, it can go bad in particular cases. But as a general system, we think that uh, it, it can be in conformity with uh, binding national and international human rights law but there are problems you know we're not stupid we're not naive things go wrong there are there's room for improvement etc thank you um someone said i'm interested in your thoughts around people who've been vaccinated solely to keep their employment do you believe it to be a violation of human rights if they've essentially received it only to protect their livelihoods? Um, uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think that's uh, a breach. Um, uh, I, th I don't think it's inappropriate to provide incentives for um, the, those who, to, people to get vaccinated. I think you could make a human rights argument that the state actually has an obligation to provide incentives because there is, you know, I, I know these are difficult, sensitive issues, but my understanding of the science is that vaccination significantly reduces transmission. And therefore, if you wish to protect yourself and your family and your community and health professionals, the best thing to do is to get vaccinated. But I accept that um, some people don't share that view and uh, we should respect them and uh, find other ways forward to, um, to address the challenge. But um, to go back to your question, I think that uh, requiring someone to, requiring a teacher, for instance, requiring a teacher to get double jabbed. I don't think that's unreasonable. And why do I focus on that? Because teachers are speaking to, you know, 30 children in a classroom. They're going to the assembly in the morning where there might be 300 
children in the room. There might be, there'll be travel together, you know, school trips together. So those are all venues where transmission could take place big time. So we have to protect our children. We have to protect our children. Yes, is Melissa okay? Uh, we have to protect our children. And, uh, and I think that in those circumstances, weighing everything up, the requirement for teachers to be double jabbed, I think, passes the human rights test as best I can apply it. Paul, do you think that the government's doing enough to support those that have lost their jobs? Yeah, that's a real good question. Um, what I would like to hear more about is mortgage holidays and rent freezes for those people. Now, again, I'm open to correction, right? So please forgive me if I get it wrong. Um, but during the alert level system, there were mortgage holidays. Now, I think I'm right in saying that that hasn't been set out in the traffic light system. I repeat, I'm open to correction. If it hasn't been made available, as it were, in the trend, I think one should look at that. Because I think one should do, the government should do all it reasonably can to soften the blow of the virus, whether it's a health blow or an employment blow or an exclusion blow, <laughs> you know? Whatever, whatever this negative impact is, whether it's a negative impact on our health, on our employment, on our sense of inclusion, the government should do all it reasonably can to moderate, to soften, to ameliorate that negative impact. There was another question a little further up, um, Paul, just saying, what are your thoughts on vaccination exemptions for religious reasons? Yeah, now this is, this is, this is actually is pretty much on my desk at the moment to wrestle with this. Um, and I'm, I'm waiting for some legal advice on it. Uh, so what I say is subject to that legal advice. What I, what I understand the position to be is that um, if, uh, if, the, if, say, a vaccination were uh, against a religion, an institutional religion, if it were against what's required by the religion, institutionally widely understood, then, then that would be a major problem. If, however, it's not part of the, uh, the sort of DNA of the religious, the religion in question, but it's rather someone who is a religious person who says, in my personal view, this is a breach of my religious, this is a breach of my religious beliefs. That's different. So at the moment, at the moment, uh, I'm waiting for advice, li literally now, uh, but my understanding is that I'm not aware of religions. I'm not talking about now personal religious belief of an individual. I'm talking now about institutionalized religions having as part of their religion that the vaccines are in breach of that religion. That, I'm, I'm not hearing that at the moment. 
But look, uh, I seriously, I'm, I'm waiting for uh, heavyweight legal advice on this, and I've just intimated my current understanding, and I need, I'll need to revisit those thoughts once I get the advice. Um, another question, one second, around um, someone said that they'd be interested in your thoughts on rest homes limiting visitors' time to family members. Um, I'm aware of the feeling of incarceration by the family member in the rest home. Is this a breach of their human rights? Yeah, another super question. And, you know, I don't pretend to have all the answers to these questions. Um, I have a, um, a, 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 a much-loved ancient mother-in-law who's in a rest home, 94, and um, I'm very alert to these challenges and these issues at a sort of very human, personal basis within my own family. Um, I think that I, my answer is going to be, you might think it's a bit of a cop-out, but it's truthful. You know, we have to be guided by the science on this. Um, so I will I, I i want to know what the science is i want to know what the level of risk is according to the science i need to be look human human rights is is a strange mix it's about norms it's about you know ethics it's about standards but it's also about the science you know it's about evidence we have to take into account both so to answer your question i would to, to, I, I would like to look at a specific situation. Uh, I don't think one can generalize. One would look, have to look at a specific situation and then get the health professional's um, advice and then make a judgment about the human rights. So I'd want a degree of specificity for the case in question, because it might vary from one rest home or one person to another. And uh, I'd require, I, I would like a degree of specificity and I'd like to know what the science is and then I can take an informed human rights position. So I'm sure that's unsatisfactory. But it has the merit of it. Do people have more questions? Keep them, keep them coming. We've still got a few more minutes. Paul, I was wondering about um, your view of whether you feel the government's response is upholding its obligations to the Treaty of Waitangi? Well, the data suggests not. Mm. You know, the statistics suggest not. You know, I think they're valiantly trying. Uh, and, you know, honouring Teiteriti isn't straightforward. And I think they've found it difficult. I think they got off to a slow start in relation to te, in relation to Teiteriti. I think they have done some catching up, but the statistics show that they're not there yet. Mm. So that's a, that's a disappointment. I was also disappointed, and I, I was public about it, that the government pushed through within a matter of hours, just about, pushed through the traffic light system legislation. Um, it just went through under urgency, um, and I was disappointed about that, and I publicly spoke about that. Um, I think they didn't get that. They didn't get that right. I understand why they did it. And I, I bent over backwards to be constructive. What I said was that when, when I 
when I went public on this, I said, look, I understand why you're going, why you're rushing with the traffic light system legislation, but at least put in a retrospective select committee process to check the legislation. Even if you enact it first, you know, you, you, you know the usual practice. Usually there's a select committee that does the scrutinizing of the legislation before it goes um, back to the House. So they were saying there's no time for that. So what I said was, as constructively as I could muster, okay, if you need to get it through today, get it through today, but there needs to be a select committee process retrospectively. And there hasn't been one. Um, to be, I want to be scrupulously fair, there is a regulation review select committee that's looking at the regulations. That's really important. There is that, but it's not the regulation review committee is looking at the regulations. It's not looking at the big picture. So I do regret that it went through fast without there being, without there being a, um, a retrospective select committee oversight process. If you remember, he got a lot of flack for it, uh, but Simon Bridges last year, he, is, he pushed for and became chair of the Epidemic Response Committee in Parliament. And it lasted some months. And um, I, thought, I thought that was a, a good accountability mechanism, you know? And it got, uh, it, it was terminated in June from memory, June of last year. And I haven't seen it be reinstated. You know, I think that we, to ensure as much, to ensure as much trust and confidence as possible in, of the, from the public, we need to be as transparent as, public, as possible. We need to be transparent, to allow criticism. And the more we do that, the more buy-in we'll get from the public at large. So I've just got a few more and a couple um, unanswered ones that I'm going to try and find in the long chat. Um, there's one here, a statement around, um, I'll just read it out. It says, I think people underestimate the level of risk from COVID to the immune compromised. This is a big risk for some from their carers. We need to keep this protection as strong as possible. I'd like the conversation to be different about, around variable level of risk, not just using rapid antigen tests. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that sentiment. Um, um, you know, uh, the, we, I, I think the my, my, I think that the rapid antigen test has potential, but it's not the solution. It's, you know, one size doesn't fit all. Uh, we're going to have to have various responses for different situations. So if I caught your point correctly, I hope I did. I, I agree with it. Um, look, humans and society, humans are complicated, right? Our societies are complicated. We're, we're not homogeneous at all. We're, you know, we're a motley crew. Um, life is complicated. Um, and we need, uh, we need sort of dexterity. We need flexibility. We need to recognize difference. Uh, we multi-national, multi responses. Um, uh, so I, I, and I think, um, I think we need more of that. You mentioned the, the, the laws that are being introduced and there's some thoughts around the other laws that have been being pushed through under the cover of COVID. Is the Human Rights Commission looking into 
the broad spectrum of the legislation that's being passed at the moment? Um, yeah, yeah, government goes on, right? It's not all COVID. So the Human Rights Commission, you know, we, we're doing the best we can to respond to all the usual stuff going through Parliament. Can I give you one example? Um, there's, as many of you will know, there's a huge piece of immensely important legislation concerning our health system. Um, there's uh, uh, proposals are out. Um, we've just, uh, the last 48 hours or thereabouts, finished a, quite a lengthy submission about the health reforms. Um, so we're, we're I, I hope I caught your point. So, you know, we do the best we can to keep abreast of COVID-19 and all that that entails, and also to make a constructive contribution on a selective basis to other legislative changes. You know, COVID-19, our complaints and inquiries uh, have, in most weeks, in several weeks, have more than doubled. Um, so we've had to hire new people um, in order to try and process these in, in a reasonable professional way. Um, so you know, we're doing, I'm not saying we're getting it right uh, all the time, but we're, we're working really hard to respond to the current, to respond to the, the, the emergency, and at the same time, do our, do our, do our daily work. Mm. That's what we're trying to do. Just, we're almost on to, I just, there's one last question, um, which was around the, the imminent uh, introduction of vaccinations for the five to 12 year olds um, and whether the Human Rights Commission has a view on this, whether it's the same or different to its view on vaccinating older individuals. Um, I think the, the, the sort of formula that we apply, you know, which I bored you with about rationality, evidence, proportionality, all that stuff, you know, I think um, that applies um, uh, but with, with an addition um, that uh, under international human rights law, children um, need to be prioritized actually. Um, and uh, so that needs to be fed in and their vulnerability needs to be fed into the equation. So I think the broad, the general equation applies, but it needs to be refined given the vulnerability of who we're talking about, namely children. Uh, and, and, you know, a key thing for me would be ensuring, getting a reassurance that the science says it's the right thing to do. So, and I believe the science is saying that. <laughs> so um, that's critically important. But then we have to factor in the vulnerability of the individuals concerned, namely children. Well, Kilda Koto, uh, many thanks to you, Paul. Uh, your careful and open approach is such a testimony to your deep understanding of these human rights, and thank you. And thanks in particular to Lottie for the work on the chat and for setting us all up with this Zui. Um, and thanks to everybody who's participated because that involvement is so critical. So everyone go well and be safe and kia kaha. Thanks for coming. Can I just say thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you, Lottie. 
thank you to the organizers and above all many thanks to everyone who has kindly listened and participated i'm very grateful to you thank thank you very much Thank you.